You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Amen. Well, hey guys, great being with you. Uh, those of you that are new, a welcome for the very first time. After service, I'll be right over there at the Connection Corner. Love to meet you. Um, this morning, what I wanted to do is give you an update. Uh, over the last six to eight weeks, our North Valley Kids program, junior high and high school, has been growing uh, significantly. And so actually, to date, we've had more kids, more junior high, more high school kids than we've ever had before. And so as a result, it's, uh, we've over-occupied the kids' building. And so they've been over-occupancy for the last six to eight weeks or so. So I asked if you guys would prayerfully consider just giving uh, above and beyond your regular giving. Those, and uh, we opened up a campus development fund for that. It's there on the envelope and it's online. And then somebody stepped forward and said, hey, I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great plan. I'll match it. And so what happens is when you give a dollar, then uh, the donor gives two. And so it triples the impact. So we're only 800 bucks away from that. So we're going to close that out today, I pray. And then so if you wanted to do that, this would be an awesome opportunity to do that. I want to sh- show you a picture. Uh, there's our junior high space that we opened up just this morning. Now they've already got TVs over there, stereo, they're rocking out. So they're doing a really good job. So it's going to be really cool. We're doing the same thing with high school right out here. That's not our long-term plan because some of you are saying it's raining a lot. Yeah, it is. It's actually more rain in the month of October than ever in Arizona history. So we're breaking records here. Uh, so here, but here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you want to give towards that, go ahead. It's campus development fund, but just make sure it's above and beyond your regular giving, uh, would be a great encouragement to help us keep things running. But let's, let's, uh, we're going to celebrate that in just a moment, just that the church is growing. The kids are coming, uh, learning about Jesus. And then, uh, the secondly, I want to encourage you and tell you, um, thank you for giving. Those of you that have already been giving in our church. Uh, we kicked off Mission Grove Church last weekend. 244 people uh, gathered for that. So can we praise God for that? 244. The largest church plant to date in Arizona history that's ever started that large in uh, the Desert Ridge area. So we believe that God's going to use that church in incredible ways. It's a sister church of ours. We fight, when you give to the general fund, we set back proceeds. When you give to the hope offering, we go above and beyond to our commitment to start and strengthen churches. So uh, that's exciting about that too. So um, let me, let me uh, pray, and then we're going to get started in today's message. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Uh, just the opportunity to week after week to get up and to share about the timeless truths in Scripture. I pray for those that have come in here today with a heavy heart, struggling with some kind of pain, affliction, or suffering. I pray, God, that in the midst of it, they'd find hope and healing in the name of Jesus. We look to your word, and we want to give this time up to opening our mind and our hearts to be receptive to the truths of your word. Might your Holy Spirit be at work. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. In 1999, I was down at Waco, Texas. Uh, This was uh, before Chip and Joanne fixer-upper made it cool. It was during the time when David Koresh was, you know, the aftermath of David Koresh. It was crazy. Like, I drove by the compound and what was left of it. My friends had just come to faith in Jesus Christ, 1997, so have I. And so I'm like, I had this ambition. I said, I'll go anywhere in the world wherever I will grow. 
because I just want to grow in my relationship with Jesus. So I found myself in Waco. I was exploring being a part of Baylor University. I was a part of this vibrant college ministry and vibrant church. I got brand new friends that just came to faith in Jesus. We're all in this discipleship house together. We're all growing. And one of my, one of my best buds was getting married to a girl that I went to high school with. Her name was Katie. And Katie uh, was the best Christian person I ever knew. As a, as a high school kid. In junior high, high school, I mean, I was bad. I was a drug dealer. I was uh, involved in gangs, uh, cliques. I was messing around, doing everything you shouldn't do. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. That was my mantra. That was high school. 18 years old, get saved. But through high school, I looked back and there was this girl named Katie who stood out as like a, a little angel. Like she was always godly, always nice, always kind, graceful, all that. Well, fast forward, 1999, I'm a new Christian. Katie's still in my friendship circle. She's marrying one of my best buds. We're in a discipleship down in Waco. It's late spring, 1999. I was working at Johnny Carino's on Valley Mills Road. I was a terrible waiter. Couldn't wait tables to save my life. I would get into a conversation with them and start sharing Jesus. And meanwhile, everybody else would be like, I want more refill. You forgot my straw. I'm like, keep your straw. I don't need, I'm going to So I was just bad. I was not a good waiter. So they reduced me to a two top during two to 4 PM. That's when I knew it was bad. Not my fit, not my calling. So I, uh, I finished up Valley Mills, uh, Johnny Carino's, which I love the bread. I got lots of pimples during that time because I ate so much bread and the, and the oils. And then, I, and then I, I, I left Johnny Carino's. I went over, did a run on the Brazos River, praying, God, strengthen my life. Help me to be strong and go back into Little Rock, into the dark circles of pain and despair and be a strong Christian for you. I just wanted to go down for a season to grow on my faith. Then I get home and I'm mowing the yard. It's Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, and I'm mowing the yard. And uh, my friend comes out the door and uh, he asks me something like, you know, hey, later today, you know, we're going to, after Sunday night life, the worship night, we're going to pack up and we're going, to Little, uh, we're going to Little Rock for the wedding, Katie's wedding. We're getting ready for it. Another friend comes out the door and says, to me while I'm mowing the yard, giving praise to God for Katie's life and my friends and how I'm growing in my faith, mowing the yard just by myself, giving praise to God. And all of a sudden my friend comes out and falls off the porch onto all fours and weeps like a baby. And I say, what's wrong? And he says, Katie's dead. And I say, if you've ever heard anything like that, it doesn't make sense. You think to yourself, no, you're wrong. That's not true. She was just alive. She was at Baylor University. We were just with her just yesterday. She's getting married. And the transportation report said that there was a wedding dress in the back seat, and somehow she lost control somewhere between Rockwall and Texarkana, and the car flipped multiple times, and Katie died. A friend and I, we didn't know what to do. Well, the Christians that I was friends with, we were all new Christians. We, didn't, we can't reconcile this. This is a good gal. This is not a bad gal. She's a godly girl, not a bad girl. She's very wonderful. And my friend was a great guy. And 
why? And we didn't have answers. So we packed up and we got in the car. We all, the whole way there from Waco to Little Rock, prayed. The next day, um, you know, we were with everybody. And a few days later, within a week or so, I find myself at a funeral service. Little Rock, Arkansas, Fellowship Bible Church, the church I came from. And uh, the place was packed, 5,000 people. And all my friends were there. Non-believers, believers, everybody's there. Everybody's asking the same question. God, how could this be? Everybody's hurt. Nobody from Katie's family came forward on that stage to talk about the death. Not a brother, not a sister, not an uncle, not a mom, not a dad. And the grandfather did. When they brought up Katie's casket and they set it on the stage at that church, those were my friends carrying Katie. Katie meant a lot to me because she was the only one that was consistent in her Christian character all throughout junior high and high school. And she modeled grace to me. When I screwed up, she would just be kind and be a great Christian witness. And I'm sitting there and I'm like shaking because I've never experienced this. I thought when I became a Christian, everything was going to get better. So I'm sitting there and then the grandfather comes up slowly and everybody knew who he was. He was the patriarch of the family. He shuffles himself to the stage. The room is deathly silent. I don't know if he had planned this or not. And he barely mutters these words. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Right then and there in that moment, somehow in my worldview of Christian living, suffering and sovereignty, I saw that somehow that God was going to be at work in this. I saw that instead of this old man cursing and blaming God, he preserves the unity and the soundness of mind to say, God is good. Though we may live in a broken world in the midst of suffering and great sadness, there can be some redemptive element out of it. A recent book that I read on leadership pain, The Classroom for Growth by Samuel Chan, he says this, paradoxically, paradoxically, Christians often have more difficulty handling personal pain than unbelievers. Sometimes Christians have a harder time with pain and suffering than unbelievers. Why? Because they look at the promises of God and they conclude they, that God should fill their lives with joy, love, support, and success. Samuel says that's reading the Bible selectively. The scriptures state clearly and often that enduring pain is one of the ways Perhaps the main way, God works his grace deeply into our lives. God's grace worked deeply into all the lives that were affected on, on, on that, that spring of 1999. Many of those friends of mine are now strong missionaries that have faced tremendous adversity and hardship. Elizabeth Elliot wrote this about suffering and loss. When she lost her husband, Jim was a missionary uh, to Ecuador, she writes, he lost his life when he was killed uh, for his faith by the Aka Indians. She writes, I'm not a theologian or a scholar, but I'm very aware of the fact that pain is necessary to all of us. In my own life, I think I can honestly say that out of the deepest pain has come the strongest conviction of the presence of God and the love of God, Elizabeth Elliot. 
in the middle of the hardship, in the middle of the pain, God promises to work. But I think this issue of uh, understanding suffering and hardship, as we're going to see in the scriptures today, uh, we need to ask, try to answer the question, where does it come from? How, how, how does, what are the sources? I'd advocate four sources. Number one, the, the easiest one is dumb decisions. When you make a dumb decision and you feel the pain from that decision, that's a form of suffering. Uh, you've probably heard it said by the girl who got pregnant when she was in junior high or high school, and then she's going through and trying to get remarried and has custody battles and frustration, and then she says, why did God make this so hard on me? Why is this so difficult? Why did God have to let me get pregnant? You're like, really? Or the guy who gets the, the DUI, you know, like, how could God do this to me? How could he do this to me? Well, think about it. Or the person who's struggling financially and they're, I'm always behind on my bills. I can never pay my bills. Well, let's look at that credit card. Okay, you got lots of debt, dumb decisions. Part of the suffering we bring on to ourselves, whether it's a speeding ticket or getting pregnant, making a bad decision, having sex outside of marriage, DUI. I mean, that's just, we, we inflict pain upon ourselves by the very nature of the, the, the stupid decisions we make. Secondly, there's the people. The Bible says that there's uh, wise people in the book of Proverbs. Those are good people that live according to God's rule and God's reign. And then there's foolish people. Believers and unbelievers can all act foolish, do dumb things. And then there's evil people, people that are bent on doing bad. They want to hurt you. That's why we have guns. That's why we have lawyers in the world. There's evil people, and evil people will hurt you. If you've been hurt by somebody, it could be out of a foolishness, or it could be out of somebody just bent on doing evil. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, everybody. Everybody sins. And giving in to that sin, people get hurt. If you've been assaulted, if you've been discriminated, you've been hurt, people are a form and the source of suffering. Thirdly, is laying down a worldview, is the world. Genesis 3, the Bible says that sin entered the world through one man, and through one man, that all, all that sin just spread through, and it corrupted everything. So we all of creation is subjected to futility. There's this frustration and tension. The body is not the way it ought to be. We find sickness, we find death, we find suffering. The world is a source of the suffering. Cancer enters into the body, it destroys the body. It's a result of the creation, the, the, the fall of creation. You have all of creation is subjected. The animal life is, is frustrated, fighting. The Bible says that one day he's gonna restore, renew all of creation. When you see tsunamis, when you see hurricanes, when you see, that's the whole world just, we're stuck in between. The whole world is not in balance in perfect unity and harmony. One day it will be. God will restore, redeem all of creation, be a perfect harmony. And then there is God. This is perhaps the hardest part. Being a Christian is not supposed to be easy. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to face trouble. Jesus said that the world's going to hate you. 
Jesus said, you're blessed if people insult you. Peter goes so far to talk about the challenges of suffering and how God uses it for good. Being a Christian, you're, an, a, you're like a, you're a magnified magnet for pain and suffering. You're going to find more of it because you stand out and you stand up. You're different. You look at the book of Daniel and you see Daniel's life and the key theme there is that God, God calls us to live distinctly different in a, in a non-Christian or a non-godly culture. And as a result of that, you find yourself in hardship at times. And in the book of Daniel, we see the sovereignty of God over history and empires. And most of us would agree, okay, God's sovereignty over history, empires, nations, world history. Yes, I can agree, and I see God's sovereignty there. God's sovereignty just means his rule and his reign over all things. And then people are agree, most Christians say, I agree with God's sovereignty over creation, how he created the world, and I get that. The two areas that Christians have the hardest time affirming God's sovereignty is salvation, number one. That is to say, is they say, no, I, it was my choice in salvation. God didn't have a play in it. And I say, look at the biblical words, predestined and elect. Those are kind of big words, you know. So obviously he's got some effect into salvation. And then the other one is suffering. Nobody wants to think about God's sovereignty in suffering. And I'm gonna argue that there is a God who is so great and so big that his ways are not our ways, that we cannot fathom everything, but we have to affirm the sovereignty of God even in suffering. I'm gonna give you a couple of passages as, as, uh, as some explanation to this. Uh, the passage in Hebrews um, is a paraphrase that I'm gonna read to you this morning. Uh, and then we're gonna be jumping in and looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19 as our major text. But the book of Hebrews says it like this. He says, my dear child, do not shrug off God's discipline. Don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. How many of you are fathers? Raise your hand. How many of you discipline your son? Raise your hand. Okay, good. You should. Okay, the child he embraces, he also corrects. How many of you correct your children? Raise your hand. Yeah. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. The Bible talks about we're kids. God's our father. He's good. Our ways are not his ways. Continue on. He's treating you as dear children. The trouble you're in isn't punishment. I like that. That's a good, good, good uh, uh, phrase for phrase idea. Punishment. It's training. The normal experience of children. Part of the understanding of suffering is believe in a good God who is your heavenly father. And at times, there's going to be things that you may think are unfair. And to be honest with you, when it comes to the sources of suffering, the suffering that you're going through, I'm no judge. I can't make the decision. I can't determine, is this a dumb decision? Well, that one, I can at times. People, sometimes, the world, maybe, or God. It's, it's gray area. But here's what I do want to help you understand is God is a good father and the idea of God disciplining his children is consistent in scripture. It's to purify us, not to punish us. 
Sam, my son, at three years old, he was uh, running around the house and he went, I was passed out in the back room after two or three nights of studying at Dallas Seminary, uh, pressured for exams, had to crank in 12-hour days, three days in a row to prep for these exams. I was passed out. My son's three years old. Um, he's running around the house supposedly and goes into the toddler room and there's a big lamp on top of the armoire. He grabs the cord and thinks, oh, he's going to play uh, Tarzan. He's going to climb the cord. And then sh- psh- shatters the lamp on his little head. Leslie uh, hears the blood curling scream and picks up the boy. My son runs him back to my room and I see my son bloody screaming, my wife screaming. She's in total panic. Uh, and I wake from my sleep really quick, and I jump up, I wipe the blood away. Thankfully, I did have some, like, EMT training, so, like, I trade, played Captain Cool on the scene. Like, he's going to be okay. Wipe his head down, get him going. We'll go to the doctor, go to the doctor. And then the hard part comes. I have to lay my son down after that traumatic experience onto the table and let the doctor stitch him up. I had to hold my kid's arms down. My wife had to, and I'm crying because I don't like any more pain for my boy. What I'm saying is, is there are some things where when we deal with in life where like as a dad, I had a moral obligation and say, I know this is going to hurt, but this needs to happen. Another instance of of suffering and how God uses suffering is in John chapter 9. This is a challenging one. This is maybe even more challenging than the last Jesus is doing ministry. He's declaring the kingdom of God. He's demonstrating the kingdom of God. He's, he's giving the words about the kingdom of God. He's doing the works of the kingdom of God. He's sharing about the kingdom of God. He's showing about the kingdom of God, God's rule, God's reign. And he sees this blind man. And it says this in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And he passed by. He saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Let me pause real quick. The popular idea back then was if somebody was born with a deformity, blind, crippled, lame, it was somebody's fault. And I think in uh, Buddhism and some of the Eastern religions, this idea of suffering is if you screw up in this life and you're going to come back and you're going to have some suffering to go through in a lower life form or whatnot. The Jewish thought was a little bit curious about this. They thought, well, if we see somebody born blind or messed up or lame, then obviously it's God's judgment on them. And so the question comes. But look what Jesus tells about the source. He says, Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin. It It wasn't that this man sinned or his parents. But then he goes so far to say this stunning statement, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he turns around and he heals them. And he heals them. And so I wrestle with this. God could plan that somebody be born blind and then why that the works of God might be displayed. If I was a blind guy, I'd be mad. I'm like, I do not want to be your poster child. How dare you make me your poster child for my life? But Jesus answers it very clearly that the works of God might be displayed in him. Listen, friends, the source of suffering, I can't put a label on every single one of them, but I can say this. We do serve a God who's mighty, powerful, sovereign, all-knowing, omniscient, and his ways are far beyond our ways. 
And what I do know is when that, yeah, that man was healed from his blindness, the testimony that came out of that was incredible. I had a friend recently tell me a story about his daughter who died of cancer. Touchy subject. He said to me, when I was holding her hand and she was dying, this she was about 40 years old when she died. She said, Dad, if the only reason that I'm going to die of cancer is so that your brother, her uncle, would come to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm okay with that. She got her uncle in the room and she said she couldn't talk. The cancer was so bad. And she wrote down two things you need to promise me before I die. Number one, you place your faith in Jesus Christ. She wrote it on a little pad. And he goes, with tears coming out of his eyes. Number two, uh, quit drinking. And actually it was three. And number three, be nice to um, Steve, or, uh, Steve and this other, other gal. And that guy at that day agrees to that and becomes a believer. My point in saying this is sometimes we don't understand why God's doing what he's doing, what he plans or what he permits, how he works, how this all works. But what we do know is that this is a common theme. Highlights in the theme of suffering in the book of 1 Peter. I'll highlight five chapters real quick. Chapter 1, there in your program, you can look. Suffering results in praise and glory and honor. Chapter 2, we learn to follow in Jesus' footsteps. When you live for Jesus, you're following in the sufferings of Christ when you suffer with him. Chapter 3, we're blessed when we suffer for doing good. Chapter 4, suffering is a part of God's plan to sanctify. Chapter 5, believers are suffering around the world. So let's look at the passage. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. I think this is perhaps one of the best passages in the New Testament about understanding uh, Christian suffering. It's a biblical theology of suffering. Peter writes with a, a heavy heart. Um, he's already been predicted that he's going to suffer. Jesus already told him, indicating the way he was going to die, crucified upside down. And Peter's steadfast and committed and he's writing to the church that's scattered throughout the Roman Empire, a group of believers in five different provinces in Rome. And look what he says, first of all, beloved. That means one that's loved by God. He says, I want you to know, first of all, you're loved by God. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also... I like that, may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. So not only should we share in the suffering, but we can also have hope because glory will be revealed. We will be restored, renewed in the future. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. That's a catchphrase back from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Peter was there. Jesus said, blessed are you who are insulted for my name's sake. He says, uh, if you're, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Let me stop. In essence, what he's saying is don't suffer for stupidity. Uh, live, for, live for Jesus. Don't be a jerk. Don't do dumb stuff. You will suffer consequences when you act like this. A murderer, a thief, 
evildoer, a meddler. A meddler is anybody that gets involved in someone's business or something they shouldn't be. It's just meddling. Uh, junior high kids do this a lot. They meddle. In my household, I'm like, quit meddling with the other kids. Leave them alone. Meddling, he, uh, Peter mentions that. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The name of Jesus, that's the name. That name moves through the Roman Empire, the name of Jesus, in intense levels of persecution, the name of Jesus, the name above all other names. That's the name, that's the banner we operate under. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. God's the Father, the church is the house, we're his kids. He says, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, for and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When he says that, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, the idea is it's not that they're hardly saved, it just means that there's great difficulty in being a Christian. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I think Peter's affirming the possibility that there'll be some stuff that goes on in the Christian life that are hard to understand. Many, many of you have maybe seen the movie Narnia. One of the questions that one of the kids asked about Aslan, who's a metaphor for Jesus, um, one of the kids say, is Aslan the lion, is he safe? And one of the other people respond and say, no, he's not safe, but he is good. He's very good. One of the things you have to understand is being a Christian, there's no promises. There's no, there's no, there's no promises in the sense that you're not going to go through suffering or hardship. Pain and suffering is one of those things that we have to look at and go, this is an incredible truth. And if I get this, it changes everything. Number one, suffering helps you to grow stronger. In football, junior high, high school, uh, my coach used to say, no pain, no. There you go. Junior high, high school, I, I tried out for the team junior high. I was fast. I was not like J.J. Nelson fast, but I was fast. And in high school, I did the same thing, and I was skinny, just like I am now. Hope, hope, hopefully, I still am, you know. And, and, and the coach said to me, son, you're good, you're fast, but you need to put on a lot of weight, and you need to work out five days a week. No pain, no gain. And I was like, man, I can't commit to that. See you later. I, I couldn't commit to the regime. There's something that happens when you are going through hardship that God's going to use it to produce something in you. Look what it says in Romans. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. It produces that. It makes you stronger. It helps you to go further and faster. When you go through one little hardship, once you get through that, you go, if I can make it through that, then I could make it through this. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Character takes a long time. Character takes a lifetime to build. It can be crushed in a moment. But 
But character is something that works through us, that God uses in us through a lifetime of obedience and trust. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. But God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. God's Holy Spirit works through it. No pain, no gain. God's using it to grow you stronger. Whatever hardship you're going through, you don't have to thank God for the problem. Lord, thank you that I have cancer. Lord, thank you that I'm crazy in debt. No, but what you can say is thank you, God, that you're committed to me right in the middle of this suffering, right in the middle of this hardship. Thank you that you want to reform me. You want to renew me. You want to restore me. Your Holy Spirit is going to be with me in it, through it, and for a good outcome. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory will himself, Christ himself will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen and establish you. When you're going through suffering, that perhaps could be the closest you'll ever get to God on this earth. Because you're so humbled, you're so dependent, you're so vulnerable and God will strengthen. Paul says, when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. Number two, suffering comes as a, when suffering comes as a surprise, it's time to readjust your expectations. I don't know what your expectations are as a Christian. Maybe you expect everything's gonna go great, everything's gonna go perfect. Maybe you feel entitled to a great life because you became a Christian. I like uh, financial coach Dave Ramsey. When people call in, people ask the question, hey, Dave, how you doing? And he says, better than I deserve. He has the framework to understand, look, I don't deserve God's greatest and God's best. I deserve a life separated from the love of God, separated from the peace of God, apart from Jesus Christ. And through a relationship with Jesus Christ, I have this blessing and this hope and this uh, encouragement. When suffering comes as a surprise, it's time to readjust the expectations. 1 Peter 4.12, look what it says. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. You don't have to think about this. You have to realize as a Christian, you have a strange calling. You have a strange calling when you're going through suffering or hardship in the middle of it. You you have to realize, Lord, okay, wait a second. You said this was happen. Jesus said in this world, you're going to face trouble. Jesus said that the world's going to hate you. It's a strange calling. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it like this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What he doesn't say is that you count it joy when you have the cancer. He doesn't say when you go through the miscarriage that you you count that a blessing or that when you go through and see somebody die that you count that a blessing. But it's in the midst of it you can still give thanks because God is with you. God is working in it for your good. First, for, uh, Philippians, the Apostle Paul, or uh, the, number three, the suffering is a sign that you're a believer. The, the Apostle Peter challenges uh, those that are Christians throughout the Roman Empire. He says, resist him. That's referring to the devil. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, all Christians go through some level of suffering. 
here in the United States, it's a probably more of a slander, gossip. It's a social suffering, being ostracized, discriminated against, held back. People will alienate you uh, for being a Christian, criticize you, those kind of things. But in some parts of the world, people are dying for their faith. Suffering is a sign that you're a believer. And Paul went so far to say uh, this in Philippians 1.29 um, to those that were suffering in Philippi. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. As a Christian, we easily can believe in Christ, but can we realize that Paul says it's, a, it's granted that you're, you believe, that's salvation, and it's granted that you suffer hard truth. I understand. But know this, God uses all your purpose, all your pain for purpose. Number four, suffering helps you to comfort others in their troubles. 2 Corinthians 1, 4 through 5, paraphrase says, he comforts us all in our troubles so that, here's the purpose, so that we can comfort others when they're troubled. And we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given, it up, given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. I think of the alcoholic who checks himself into a program and makes it through, sober for 10 years. What better person for a a person who's living a life of sobriety to reach back and to help somebody with alcoholism? I think of the gal who loses her baby in a miscarriage and they have the funeral And they mourn and they go through the grief and the stages of grief. And then God uses that in time where the person is able to reach back to the other young lady who goes through a miscarriage and helps comfort them. Or I think about the person who goes through cancer, who has a tremendous recovery story of surviving cancer. And then they can comfort others with the same comfort that they've experienced from God. What I want to encourage you to realize is that God never wastes your pain. He won't waste it. He'll use, he's got a purpose behind it that you're, that's maybe bigger and more mind-boggling than you can understand, but he's sovereign and he's good. The fifth truth about suffering, this is for those of you that are in leadership. You're organized in a way that you've got influence of over other people, or this is for you that are aspiring to help lead others. This point. If you're not bleeding, you're not leading a life of discipleship. It's a challenging statement. But Jesus said it like this, Luke 9, 23 through 24. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So a follower of Jesus Christ has got to live the life of the cross, dying to sin daily. He says this in verse 24, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, will save it. It's a giving up of the will. Jesus, you be the king. I don't want to be the king. Jesus, I'm going to die to my sin. Lord, like you carried that cross, I'll carry that cross. It's a paradox. Christianity is a paradox. It's a paradox. If you, to live, you need to die. That's a paradox. It's a calling to be different. Here's what Samuel Chand writes about this, about leadership. He says, do you want to be a better leader? Then raise the threshold of your pain. Do you want your church to grow? Do you want your business to reach higher goals? 
Reluctance to face pain is your greatest limitation. There is no growth without change, no change without loss, no loss without pain. If you're not hurting, you're not leading. Point is, is that the, the, the more you grow in leadership, the greater magnet for pain you become. And the prayer needs to be, God help me to endure the pain to glorify you no matter what. I mean, that's the test of real Christ Christianity, of when you go through hurt and hardship, will you say, blessed be the name of the Lord? I lose my kids. I lose my wife. The test comes for me. Would, would, would Ryan submit to a sovereign, loving God and still get up week after week and teach the Bible and say that God's good? It's a test. It's a challenge of suffering. When I get sick, one day, my father has prostate cancer. When all, when all these things happen, in the midst of all the suffering and all the challenges, can I still affirm God's good and he's working all things together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose and plan? It's an invitation to trust God in the midst of it. Here's the good news. Number six, more good news, is for the Christian, this life is as close to hell as you'll ever get. It doesn't get any worse for a Christian. It only gets better and better and better. I mean, Phoenix is hot, guys, but hell is hotter. Okay? It's eternal torment, eternal suffering. You think of the imagery of seeing maybe an old movie or whatnot where you see the concentration camps and the, the, the families, the Jewish families are loaded up and into an inferno and there's a smoke factory and people are asking, what's the smoke for? What's the smoke? Burning bodies over there. Hell is, the intensity is described in Matthew and in Revelation, there in your program, in an unending, eternal torment, suffering, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's as bad, as bad, as bad as it can get. But the good news is, as the believer, the pain, the hell that you feel like you're going through will never get worse. It only gets better and better and better as a believer. The, you, you're as close to hell as you'll ever get. This is what 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17 says. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The life and the suffering and the challenge you're living, going through right now, this is as bad as it gets. Lastly, I want to encourage you that Jesus suffered in our place so that we wouldn't have to suffer. Peter says this, he himself bore our sins. On the tail end of teaching on suffering, he talks about the suffering servant, Jesus. He says, he himself bore our sins, his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By theologians and scholars, that's been called penal substitutionary atonement, big words. Penal means is that he took the penalty. Jesus took the penalty, the, the consequences of our sin that we deserve, Jesus took them. So you and I don't have to pay a price as a Christian. Jesus paid that price. Penalty. He took the penalty of our sin, our wrongdoing, our offense. He put it all on Jesus. He take, paid the penalty. He paid it all. Substitute. He died in our place. We don't have to die. We get eternal life. Jesus paid the price. We, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. You earn as you sin death. But Jesus is a substitute. He's the paid the penalty. He's the substitute. 
atonement. He creates peace. He creates healing. He creates hope. He creates restoration. That the world that we live in is not the world that will always be. That God promises to, to heal, to restore, renew in our lifetime. And in, in, as we as believers live. And then one day we'll face Jesus and he will make all things new. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that in this time, Lord, for those that have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ and are rattled potentially by the idea if they were to die today, where they would spend a life in a Christless or eternity or an eternity with you. I pray right now for those individuals that they would say today, today is the day I want to clearly just place my faith in Jesus. So pray this, uh, Lord, I acknowledge my sin. Lord, I believe in you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sin. And I confess you with my mouth and believe in my heart today that you are the Lord in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Hey, today, if you prayed that prayer, the Bible says that you've been born again and you're made new. We're gonna enter into a time of communion. Joshua's gonna share about that with us. And you're invited to be a part of that family. For all of us, I wanna encourage us to realize that Jesus suffered in our place so we didn't have to and he promises to be with us right in the midst of it. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.